Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. We've all done it. You walk into the grocery store with a mental list of a handful of items. It's just a few things. Easy, right? Easy until you get home and realize you've forgotten one of the things on your list. Scientists know the working memory starts to fail at a fairly low number of items. But until now, they haven't really known why. Let's step back in time a little bit. In 1956, cognitive psychologist George Miller published one of the field's most widely cited papers, the magical number seven, plus or minus two. He acknowledged that the brain can store a lifetime of knowledge in its trillions of connections, but in his paper, Miller wrote the number of items that humans can actively hold in their conscious awareness at one time is limited to seven on average. What about the magical number seven? What about the seven wonders of the world, the seven seas, the seven deadly sins, the seven daughters of Atlas and the Pleiades, the seven ages of man, the seven levels of hell, the seven primary colors, the seven notes of the musical scale, and the seven days of the week? What about the seven-point rating scale, the seven categories for absolute judgment, the seven objects in the span of attention, and the seven digits in the span of immediate memory? For the present, I propose to withhold judgment. Perhaps there is something deep and profound behind all these sevens, something just calling out for us to discover it. But I suspect that it is only a pernicious Pythagorean coincidence. The seven items might be a series of digits, words on a list, or even overlapping sounds. Miller wrote that no matter what they are, only seven of them can fit in what's called working memory. That's where they're available for our focused attention and other cognitive processes. But their retention in working memory is short-lived. When we're no longer actively thinking about them, they're stored elsewhere or forgotten. Since Miller's time, neurologists and psychologists have continued to study working memory and its strict limitations. They've found that the limit may really be closer to four or five items rather than seven. And they've studied how people work around this constraint. We can remember all the digits of a phone number by chunking digits. So one and four becomes 14, for instance. Or we develop mnemonic devices for retrieving random digits, like the mathematical formula of pi, out of longer-term storage. But exactly why working memory starts to falter at such a seemingly low threshold has been elusive. Scientists can see that any attempt to exceed that limit causes the information to degrade. Neuronal representations get thinner, brain rhythms change, and memories break down. This seems to occur at an even smaller number of items in patients who've been diagnosed with neurological disorders like schizophrenia. Still, the mechanism causing these failures has remained mysterious until recently, last spring to be exact, when a paper was published in Cerebral Cortex. In it, three scientists found that a significant weakening in feedback signals between different parts of the brain is responsible for the breakdown. The work provides insights into memory function and dysfunction. It also offers further evidence for a new theory of how the brain processes information. Earl Miller, a neuroscientist at the Pickhower Institute for Learning and Memory at MIT, is one of the study's authors. It's a central mystery in cognitive neuroscience on what makes thoughts conscious. And what's interesting about consciousness 
is that your brain can store an unlimited amount of information, a whole lifetime of knowledge inside your skull. But what's unique about consciousness is consciousness is limited in capacity. We only can think about very few thoughts at the same time. And so if we can figure out what it is that makes consciousness limited in capacity, we can hopefully have insight into what makes thoughts conscious. So Miller worked with Dimitris Pinotsis, a researcher in his lab, and Timothy Bushman, an assistant professor at Princeton University, on the study. They wanted to know what sets the capacity limit of working memory so low. Think about all the, you know, the knowledge you have in your head from your lifetime of experience, what you've learned in school, everything you've experienced in your life. Your brain has an ex- extraordinarily high capacity to store information, but for some reason it only can be expressed a, a little bit at a time. They already knew that a network involving three brain regions is active in working memory. This network includes the prefrontal cortex, the frontal eye fields, and the lateral intraparietal area. But they had yet to observe a change in neural activity that corresponded to the transition between remembering and not remembering that comes with exceeding the working memory limit. So they returned to a working memory test that Miller's lab had performed a few years earlier. In it, the researchers showed monkeys a series of screens. The first screen had a set of colored squares. This was followed briefly by a blank screen. And then the initial screen flashed once more. This time, the color of one square changed. The animals had to detect the difference between the screens. Sometimes the number of squares fell below their working memory capacity, and sometimes above. Electrodes placed deep in the monkeys' brains recorded the timing and frequency of brain waves produced by neurons as they completed each task. These waves are essentially the coordinated rhythms of millions of neurons that become active and go quiet simultaneously. When brain areas exhibit matching oscillations, both in time and in frequency, they're said to be synchronized. Miller says this shows neurons temporarily forming networks of communication. The idea is that neurons that hum together are talking to one another. And once they stop humming there, once they stop synchronizing their rhythms, they no longer are talking to one another. So the way we think about it is anatomy is like the road and highway system. It just says where traffic could go. What determines what the traffic lights are, are patterns of resonance created by these brain waves, by these oscillatory rhythms. They're essentially the traffic lights that direct traffic on the road and highway system. Neurons can talk to one another, the traffic flows in a certain way because certain networks of neurons are synchronizing their rhythms. And when they stop synchronizing their rhythms, the traffic flows somewhere else. Researchers hypothesize that this setup somehow seems to help bind active networks into a firmer representation of an experience. In their recent work, Miller and his colleagues mined the oscillation data from the monkeys for information about how this three-part memory network functions. They used this previous research to build a detailed mechanistic model that incorporated assumptions about the network structure and activity. This included things like the locations and behaviors of specific neural populations or the frequencies of certain oscillations. The researchers then generated several competing hypotheses for how the different brain areas might be talking to one another as the monkeys had to remember more and more items. They compared those computations to their experimental data to determine which of the scenarios was most likely. Their modeling confirmed that the three brain regions act like jugglers engaged in a complex game of catch. 
The prefrontal cortex seems to help construct an internal model of the world. It sends so-called top-down or feedback signals that convey this model to lower-level brain areas. Meanwhile, Miller says the superficial frontal eye fields and lateral intraparietal area send raw sensory input to the deeper areas in the prefrontal cortex in the form of bottom-up or feed-forward signals. Bottom-up information is all the raw sensory information you're getting from the outside world. Top-down information is all the knowledge you acquire. It's, it's what you've learned. It's what you know that's not evident in the outside world. It's your, the knowledge your brain has acquired in its experiences. Differences between the top-down model and the bottom-up sensory information allow the brain to figure out what it's experiencing. It can then tweak its internal models accordingly. Miller and his colleagues found that when the number of items to be remembered exceeded the capacity of the monkey's working memory, the top-down feedback connection from the prefrontal cortex to the other two regions broke down. But the feed-forward connections remain just fine. The group's models show the weakening of the feedback signals led to a loss of synchrony between the brain areas. Without the prediction-oriented communications from the prefrontal cortex, the working memory network fell out of sync. But why is the top-down feedback so vulnerable to an increase in the number of items to be remembered? The researchers hypothesized that the modeled information coming from the prefrontal cortex essentially represents a set of predictions about what the brain will perceive in the world. In this case, that's the contents of the items being held in working memory. Here's neuroscientist Earl Miller. The most important thing about working memory, in other words, the most important thing about conscious thought, is that you have control over it. You choose what to pay attention to, you choose what to think about. If you didn't have that ability, that volitional control of your own thoughts, your mind, your behavior, everything you do would be slave to the outside world. You'd be buffeted by anything that comes along. All you'd be able to do is just react to things. Neuroscientist Carl Friston of University College London, who wasn't involved in the study, compares it to reading. As you're reading a sentence, you have expectations or representations about the current word, phrase, or sentence. He says that means you have an implicit representation of the past and future. Many neuroscientists believe the brain relies heavily on such predictive coding of sensory data to perform its routine cognitive and command functions. But Miller and his colleagues theorize that when the quantity of items placed in working memory gets too large, the number of possible predictions for those items can't be encoded easily into the feedback signal. As a result, the feedback fails and the overloaded working memory system collapses. Scientists' model of working memory traditionally places most of the emphasis on the firing activity of individual neurons. Miller's lab and others are working to carve out a more important role for the interplay between brain waves in that model of working memory. They're also investigating why the upper bound on working memory hovers around four or five items and not some other number. Miller thinks the brain is juggling the items being held in working memory one at a time in alternation. He says that means all of the information needs to fit into one brainwave. When you exceed the capacity of that, you've reached the limit on working memory. Rufin von Rulen, a researcher at the French National Center for Scientific Research, finds the team's modeling and conclusions powerful. It's definitely a valid modeling paper. 
you know, the study is valid because they do model fitting. They start from some assumptions, they fit models, and then they report what they find. There's nothing wrong about this, right? The question is more about where this is going to take us. But right now, it's still a model. What we need is to actually go inside the brain and find more direct evidence for these connections. The potential payoff is high. Cementing a predictive coding model for working memory won't just enable a better understanding of how the brain works and what might go wrong in neurological diseases. Neuroscientist Carl Friston says it also has critical implications for what we mean by intelligence and even selfhood. As a start, having a better grasp of what the brain's feedback connections are doing could lead to big steps in artificial intelligence research. That currently focuses more on feed-forward signals and classification algorithms. As one of the researchers points out, sometimes an AI system might need to make a decision, not on what it sees, but based on what it remembers. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowicz's full article, Overtaxed Working Memory Knocks the Brain Out of Sync, on our website, quantamagazine.org. And while you're online, you can check out two new quanta books published by the MIT Press, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy. They're available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore.